But we can change the rules that we play by Here's one that's non-negotiable We're here, queer, and we're staying We're here, and we ain't going nowhere No, we're here, queer, and we're staying Now we're here, and we ain't going nowhere The species is at a choice point. Will this be our evolutionary crash or our evolutionary leap? My name is Gibran Rivera. I'm a facilitator, and this is my podcast. Here, I'm inviting you into a conversation with remarkable leaders who are devoting their lives to the evolution of consciousness and culture. In this episode, I introduce you to my friend, J. Marie Hill, an activist, musician, and educator who lives a life that is designed to help our world ascend beyond gendered and racialized norms. I met J. Marie thanks to my boy, E-Rock, who got them to come to the Evolutionary Leadership Cohort of 2018. I was immediately moved by the way in which J. Marie brings their self into transformational space. I feel blessed to call them a friend. Jay-Marie founded Music Freedom Dreams in order to build systemic change in queer and trans communities around the country. Jay-Marie currently serves as Transgender Education and Advocacy Program Coordinator for the ACLU of Missouri. Listen to the podcast. Jay-Marie has a powerful way of bringing us into their heart, even as they teach us with what I find to be a powerful and piercing intellect. Please do contribute to J. Marie's latest project. It is a 160-mile black, trans, and gender non-conforming four-day bike ride. It is going from Philadelphia to D.C. this September. Their goal is to join the Trans March on D.C. on September 28th. See our notes for the link. Enjoy the podcast. Jay Marie, I am thrilled to be in conversation with you today. Thank you for thank you for saying yes to the invitation. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. This is such an honor. I'm excited to chat with you. Yeah. I mean, every single time I talk to you, I feel like I learn something new. I leave feeling a better person. There's something about your spirit and your wisdom and the way you carry what you know that uh that moves me deeply and I couldn't wait for, for my listeners to, to get to know you a little bit better. That's very generous. And I am honored. I feel that similarly, you know, I feel like we are in a meeting of the spirits and of the questions and curiosities. And so I'm honored to be curious with you on this chat, but also just in general that we're in community. I appreciate all of those components of our friendship. Me too. Me too. Can you tell me what you're up to these days? What are you working on right now? Yeah, I can. So I, I'm um, on this call from St. Louis, Missouri. So I'm working on feeling more and more at home in this um, Midwest city that I feel like I kind of reverse migrated to um, from Oakland. I'm from Oakland, um, from the Bay Area broadly, moved here directly from Oakland um, in 2017. And 
yeah, so I do a lot of things, but what I'm primarily working on right now is um, really multiple ways of trans organizing. So on the one hand, I do work through an uh, organization that I started called Music Freedom Dreams that essentially you know, believes that every move, movement needs a soundtrack, needs access to spaces to strategize for freedom and needs um, you know, dream-filled action towards what it is that we know we deserve, right? So Music Freedom Dreams is a container for me to kind of spark off things in the world. Um, and right now we today have just actually launched um, a black trans bike experience. So that's one thing I'm gonna be working on. We can talk more about that. I also uh, work with the ACLU of Missouri, which I probably wouldn't have seen myself in this particular role a few years ago, but really grateful for the opportunity to do this work here. So I'm a statewide um, organizer with them doing uh, trans justice organizing, um, which basically alludes to the fact that trans folks deserve justice and you know, the ways that we need the community and, and folks at large to think about our arrival into that space is that there is work for everyone to do. Um, and so I'm here to just try to organize folks. Yes, we, you know, we, we fight alongside uh, each other and I'm currently using the civil liberties framework to do that, which I think is in a way open and also limiting at the same time. So doing those two things, Music Freedom Dreams, ACLU of Missouri, and then I've, you know, where I can fit it in. I'm a musician, um, write, you know, whatever my spirit calls need to do trying to get off the social media though because that's where i spend a lot of my time sometimes social media is such a catch it uh yeah. it, it allows it allows me to find out what you're up to right but then it becomes this like death hole of negativity all the time and that's that's it, it, it's it's a bind mm -hmm. it's tricky for sure now when did you start doing uh, organizing well you know, I would say I realized that it was something that people did with their life when I went to a training um, by the Center for Third World Organizing in 2010. It was actually combined with, um, and I think this speaks a lot to the journey that I've taken since then, but it was combined with um, an organization called the Brown Boy Project that also kind of held a training that was attached to the Center for Third World Organizing training. And uh, it was a it was a weekend of us to learn like what canvassing was and kind of just that the, the idea that organizing is a trade, right? That it's like this kind of job you don't learn about in school. And then the Brown Board Project component was um, <clears throat> a, a, a space to interrogate masculinity given the idea, and this was the first place that I'd seen this, where people experience masculinity or are maybe conferred with the benefits of masculinity regardless of what their body puts into the world. like. It might be harder. The state doesn't want us to have access to certain um, things that it deems appropriate for certain bodies. But in, in that moment, in 2010, masculinity and gender was more of a new conversation than it is today. So um, I learned what organizing was then. And I think I was drawn, have been drawn to it ever since, although this is my first uh, role as, quote unquote, an organizer in my title. Got it. And was it always in the context of the trans community that, that you've kind of moved this effort forward? I don't think so. No, I um, started off really trying to understand blackness more as like my primary um, lane of like point of entry, uh, because I grew up in the Bay Area where, you know, there is a lot of diversity. There is a lot of, um, you know, kind of goodness. People think of it as this, you know, positive, sunny place. Um, but I felt like the conversation around blackness was stunted, right? Like I was, you know, I grew up around white folks, the black folks that I knew were like on my basketball team. And I was like, that seems, you know, fine, but I don't, I don't feel like I can make generalizations about black folks because I have them on my team, right? Or I, there's only a couple in my classes, like none of that feels true. So when I went to college, um, 
that is where I really dug into the blackness piece. And that was where I learned that, you know, the, the world that society tells us about or the, the, the messages that we get are not the only options in terms of what we have to agree to believing in. And so that was where I did, like I started in the blackness realm and then I found that gender could also be a very specific conversation even within blackness. And so that I think is where I found my, my home. And I think in 2010, you might, I don't even think we would have called it trans organizing. It still would probably have been more of like a black women and girls entry point. But uh, seeing as I never quite felt like I belonged in the group Black Women and Girls, like entirely, I felt like that still kind of limited my experience um, or what I was bringing to the conversation. I've kind of pushed my way, uh, pushed the borders of those conversations that I enter into because I feel like there's, you know, the Black Women and Girls portion. There is something about gender more broadly than what we know of as women and girls happening inside of me and in terms of the people I'm drawn to. So I've always kind of been pushing the boundaries of any gender or black conversation that I get into and they always end up just enmeshed somehow together. Got you. That's that is there's so you've already said so much that I feel like I gotta I gotta dig into. So I appreciate this entry point that you're talking about. And and this is actually there was actually a question I came uh into the podcast wanting to ask. I think something beautiful that for the pers from the perspective of somebody outside of the trans community, because I'm sure it doesn't feel the same for somebody inside it, it feels like a like a recent like upswell in awareness uh, that that feels important and, and momentous. And I know that it doesn't take away from the ongoing oppression and risk to the community, but at least among those of us. That, that care for justice, there seems to be a, 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 an upswell in, in concern and awareness. Uh, would you say that's true? And, and, and if so, how, what has been your experience of that? Yeah, um, so I definitely have heard from other folks that that is what it feels like, right? And I think what that can also be thought of as is, is more of a, um, a willingness for us to look at what has always been so, right? And a, and a willingness to, to um, acknowledge that there is something separating folks who experience gender as simple and you know uh, maybe what they were assigned at birth feels resonant with them. Folks who, who live that life, they're starting to see that not only is it a, a pretty common thing for people to not feel that way about their gender, to feel some type of tension or to feel some type of um, desire to resolve what they don't feel like is true for their body in terms of what the world might be projecting onto them. But um, really, I think it's a willingness to, to wrestle with the idea that like transness is not inherently bad. Mm -hmm. um, I think I grew up feeling that or, or you know, um, receiving TV messages, right? That culturally being trans, thinking about the Maury show, right? Like culturally being trans was something to make fun of, I would say right. throughout the 90s and 2000s. And I wanna say that because the community has been really, um, you know, as the state does expertly push to the margins um, for anyone who's different or doesn't kind of conform to very specific things, um, many people were not privy to how intense the struggles are for trans folks, right? It's to say, we're going to push you out of the margins, but then make fun of you for what you run into out there, right? Wow. Which is, we are just now realizing that what people are running into is not something that they deserve, right? It's not something that you know, people want to consign. They want to say, oh, well, that, not on my watch is what we're, I think, getting to in a way that we just, because many people were not in community with trans folks, trans folks were somebody you ran into on the street randomly or saw at a bar but didn't talk to. No, you know, people weren't in friendship, in relationship with 
trans folks or people who have the language to access what it might mean to be trans. Um, now there's a willingness because we actually just have new words that are more, you know, in the lexicon than they were a few years ago. I think social media has helped with that. And just in terms of proximity, you don't have to know someone personally to maybe follow them on the internet and just notice that there is more of a nuanced experience there than you had realized before. Thank you for that. That makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, and as you're speaking about friendship and relationship uh, with folks, uh, it sounded to me, and I'm, I'm going to appreciate any pushback, but it sounded to me like that kind of friendship, given what the culture was feeding you about being a trans person, that that there must have been a moment of trying to have a friendship with yourself as a trans person. That there was, I mean, I that's kind of I'm reading between the lines that there was a, I think that this is this is who I am. It's it's not. Okay, so it, it, am I making the right assumption? Could you help put shed some light on that? Yeah, I think so. If we if we just go backwards in terms of like queer and trans community and what people put on the community, right? For instance, the idea that Stonewall was started by or really brought to light by a trans woman, right? Or a trans woman did the most work publicly after it happened, regardless of who threw the first brick and all of that. Um, we see that there has been a marginalizing of trans folks for a very long time. And, and that has also come from parents kicking out their children, right? And from people being denied those very first relationships that really teach you that you're worth life and joy and access to jobs and healthcare, right? Like getting kicked out of your own parents' home is gonna make it so that you have to, even if you believe that you're worth that, you still have to convince society to employ you or to give you the healthcare you deserve, you know, that you physically need. And so while that has been going on, I think, the folks who have come before me and have fought to, to show those who would come after them that just because you got kicked out of your house or your job doesn't mean that you're, you should put up with that or that you're worth any less. I would say that is a model that I see and I've really um, leaned into given that I grew up in a church kind of Christian based household that was really passing those beliefs on as well. Right. Not maybe as violently as some kind of evangelist, uh, you know, like right-wing kind of folks do, but you know, even the, the things that seem harmful, the texture of those is still very felt, right? Yes. So it, it, there is a, a type of friendship with myself that I think I am working to uh, get clear on in a sense. And part of that is shows, I think in my artist name, which is J Marie is Holy, because yes. uh, you know, when people, when people witness me performing or, or in getting conversation with my music, I need them to know that I am, I am one of those holy people that even though your church or your upbringing or society might have told you otherwise. Thank you for bringing that up. I, uh, I, that was also on my list of questions. Uh, I grew up uh, in a church background as well and uh, just familiar with the intensity of that discourse that you know, I heard you say that, that, you, that you know that there are worse systems, but, but still it's, it's so present and, uh, I think we have connected along the lines of this kind of spiritual calling or, or this awareness of the sacred. Uh, so I want to, what more can you tell me? I, I, I understand the message of the name, but it sounds to me, and I have experience in your presence, that there's actually a holiness that you are holding, right? An awareness of your light that you are bringing forward. And I would love to know more about how you relate uh, to that, which is sacred in yeah. and as you. I appreciate that question. And yes, that is something that we've, we've communed around. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I, I call it spiritual violence, 
this experience that we that many of us have around being told that a being that we have not yet seen or even felt connected to is more important than our personal desires or more worth paying attention to and studying than who we are and what makes us tick. Mm-hmm. And um, that comes in many forms, right? Conversion therapy, being forced to go to spaces or churches or events that feel in contradiction to things that you've expressed, right? Um, around either your identity or your beliefs, um, even, you know, something as simple as God is a man, right? Like why? The whole point of this is that like God is literally a spirit. It's like, we just don't know what's going on. And we are just like hopeful that there's something out there. But for us to even name that as a man, right? is like not only patriarchy um, at work, right? This idea of privileging of men, no matter who and what we're talking about, but it's going to seep into our spirits, right? And so for me, from a young age, I think even before gender was such a focus, something as simple as that, as like this idea that God is a man or that men should be in charge didn't really sit right with me. Um, and I think, you know, like many black and brown folks, a lot of times our, our mothers and our aunties and our grandmothers are, are actually running things, you know? So it's like, we see and we hear this thing about men and but it doesn't quite match up. So I think, you know, from an early age, I saw that women ran things and that's okay and that's beautiful. And how can we find this kind of balance um, of that reality, knowing that God doesn't have to be a man and kind of undoing what it seems like church was trying to teach us or this idea that men should always be in charge. Um, That just didn't seem right. So I think there's this path that I've been walking where um, I have a, I I was raised with both my parents in my home and um, my dad was actually the more emotional one than my mom. So that's one kind of gift that I was given. And then my dad was also much more like available during my schooling years than my mom. My mom was always working and very much still available, very much still listening to me and, you know, curious about my friends and all of that. We had time to build, but I think my experience of my parents and the genders that people think of parents holding the roles of, like, was a little bit flipped, I guess. Um, and then on top of that, I had uh, a brother and a sister. I still have, thankfully, they're still here. Um, and so I felt like I was getting two different examples of gender. And my brother also, in a way, like, he gets pedicures and manicures more than I remember even my sister getting them. So I just was kind of, I would always watch people do things that, you know, wasn't necessary in the rest of the world. I was receiving it as gendered, but in my own family, there were exceptions. Um, and so through that, plus the church story, I kind of decided that again, you know, whatever gender my experience is like whatever experiences I have, they don't have to be in a certain category. My grandmother rode motorcycles. Like I just, I had, I had ideas, you know? Um, and so that's kind of where it started. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And uh, now you've mentioned that for many trans folk, like this kind of getting kicked out of the house is a, is something that happens, right? Uh, uh, what was it like uh, at home for you? Was there like is it something that your parents always understood about you? Is it something that they struggled with? What what was that kind of? Because you, you, it seems like your household and family are uh, and overall a, a good system from from what you're saying mm-hmm. how how was it able to hold your experience yeah i think you know there's always the generational aspect right parents are going to have to figure out how to come around to what their kids are up you know up about that when they you know when they become <laughs> adults and have ideas and so there has been a generational struggle i think in the sense that like pronouns aren't as simple on this on this end of things when I, when i first came out i was coming out as queer i was just coming out as like somebody who wasn't gonna marry a dude, right? Um, and so it was much simpler back then, I feel like. But even then, we actually, like I was in college when I came out and while they didn't cut me off 
from you know any kind of resources that I probably could have gotten. I, in a way, cut myself off because I didn't feel received in the way that I wanted to be when I first came out. Um, and there, you know, there was a distancing. It was, it did feel like the the beautiful relationship we had, um, which I should add was strengthened because I, um, I almost died when I was a teenager. I kind of skipped over that part, but uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a thing. We, I'll tell you, but I, I wanted to hear yeah, that one yeah. too. But yeah, so um, I had a an allergic reaction to something, and and you know, was in the hospital for a couple, a few weeks, um, and home schooled for a few months. And in that time, of course, my parents were there. They were at the hospital. You know, I had people from from church come and, you know, I, I received over 90 get well cards in this three month span. Um, and I felt very loved. I was very grateful that I not only did I survive, but also that I had just received this influx of love. And so then when I came out just three, two and a half years later, right, that was such a stark difference um, being, you know, no, I'm going to fight for your life. You know, you have this one in one in um, two million chance of this thing and we're going to fight for you. And came out of nowhere. But then as soon as I come out and I'm queer, all of a sudden that love is less easy for you to traffic in. And I just didn't understand that. And I was, of course, very sad. And I, I think I needed time for myself to clarify the kind of love I wanted. Right. I was say, you know, so that I could, if I separate, I could say, well, make clear that this isn't quite how I want to be received. Or if I bring people home, this isn't what you told me you would receive me as when I was younger. If I brought friends home from college, maybe you didn't expect that I was intimately connected to them. But still, if I was doing that in your house and you said our home was welcome to people who were coming from all the country, couldn't fly home for Thanksgiving, right? Like there was just a mismatch of what people said, even though when I was younger, yeah, my mom bought me a bag of jeans. Like it was kind of harmless. I think in her mind, I was an athlete. They let me go to my sports games instead of going to church on Sundays. There were some, some balance things that we had found, but I, because when I came out as initially queer um, and there was such a clear, distinct kind of break and the willingness for them to love, I, that was when I knew that I needed to reclaim my holiness because they didn't know how to love me in the way that they had previously. And I knew that they just needed to be taught because I knew with the zero to 17 love that I had received the overflow, I knew that that wasn't just going to go away. I, I was committed to it. It was probably my first organizing opportunity was like, I'm going to organize you back into loving me because ain't nothing wrong with me. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. Yes. That is so beautiful. I, I got so many like threads to pull on, but I'm curious. Your siblings was it a different energy with them or? Yeah, my siblings are they're kind of spectrum. Like um, my sister has always been really helpful. Like in those moments where my parents and I were not quite seeing eye to eye, my sister would be like, "Okay, I'm gonna come pick you up. Come over the house." She's the oldest, so she was able to kind of carve out her own space. And we've always been like a little bit more kind of political together. We talk about things. She receives my you know, critique of the system and these things. And she's curious, you know, about politics and where the country is heading, right? Kind of as most black women are, right? Are very clear about we need to both fix it in the now and dream of something better. But she's always been down to hold, hold me in all in this process. Um, and then my brother, you know, he's a little, he's a little more, uh, you know, um, he's goofy and he's sweet, but he's like, I don't really get this gay stuff. So like, I don't really want to talk about it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, about, like, yeah, everything yeah. but that. Um, even though when people call me for the first 15 years of my life, they thought it was, you know, when we had home phones, they thought I was my brother. Um, we're very similar. Like our voices are similar. We've always looked alike. So we have these other ways of connecting, but it hasn't been um, a place where I feel like we can talk super talk about gender, even though he's a model for me, right? Even though he's a six, seven, gets pedicures, goofy dad, like he's amazing. But that's a place that we don't quite see eye to eye. I got it. Patriarchy. Patriarchy's got us. <laughs> Um, there's something about you 
that I find inspiring and important. And, and I attribute somehow to this holiness bit, but, but you, can, you can further clarify for me. But you hold the ache of your community. I've I seen you. I've seen it. I have, I have witnessed I have witnessed your tears, if I might say that. You know, I have witnessed you empathize deeply with what is happening. Um, because just in case anybody that's listening doesn't, is not aware, like, by far, right, like, the most vulnerable of, of all oppressed groups, right? Like, at the level of death and murder, for some reason, the existence of trans folks evokes a desire to... To kill, I don't. I mean, it's it's uh, it's something that is really hard to grapple with. For me, never mind you. There's way a way in which you hold this that is complete, and yet there's something about your spirit that that is open and joyful. Because there's a way to be strong that's kind of tight and contracted, right? But there is kind of an open strength and and a joy that that you keep moving and i think in these days that 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 is often missing from the spaces where i'm facilitating that that capacity to be with it all and i'm wondering if you think my assessment is correct and if so like what what is that how, how does that mm -hmm. happen yeah well i definitely i i you know i have to start off by saying the love that i did receive as a young person um, you know, holes in it or missing parts as they may have been, I feel like I had a very fundamental, fundamentally safe upbringing, maybe safe from things that would have punctured our safe, our safety net. But at the same time, like, you know, my parents, I think, worked really hard and made choices that I was where I was brought up in like safe neighborhoods. I was, you know, it didn't, it did also bring a lot of white people. So I'm more comfortable with white folks in a certain way. Um, and, uh, you know, in a way that, uh, means that I'm not often struggling through discomfort with people, which is like, I think part of um, what happens to a lot of folks in my community who are black, trans, queer, you know, and stand out is like, they've been targeted, right? By some of these same folks that I grew up with around feeling safe, even though I might've been um, gender weird back then even. Um, but in the sense that I would say, you know, standing out as like a person who is a tomboy or a black, you know, gender bending, young person is different than being an out trans person at like 12, right? Like, so I want to name that I didn't have violence starting at a really young age. So I do think that's kind of a part of my foundation is that I just kind of have this innocence or this trust, this hope that is more at the surface um, that I don't have to struggle with or, you know, have an experience of society denying me many, many things. And they're just because of gender, right? Um, there may be blackness, there may be other things there, but even that, right, I'm a light-skinned black, person I have the access to things that I have I went to Stanford right there's there I, I don't want to ignore the ways that I have been brought into a space of like the class of people who get to have hope who are trained to have hope in the systems or the things as they are so I, I fight against the comfort of that by being pr proximal to folks who don't have those experiences right and 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 by building relationships right not being proximal like oh I just want to be close to you and get this cred or anything like that but more so that because I realized when I, when I went to that organizing training, basically in 2010, um, that both opened my eyes to organizing broadly and also gender and masculinity and some of the language needed to move through that. Um, it gave language to my experience and I felt, I realized that 
the context that I'd grown up in was just missing a lot of information, right? And so I've been seek I've been seeking that information and been drawn to people who would kind of help answer those questions about, well, why is gender like this? Or why does the world look like this, right? Society, race, class, how can I get a deeper understanding of these things? So that when I do, you know, go to be outward with it, whether it's a job or a project or music, that I'm speaking things that are not just my, you know, semi-sheltered childhood, right? But that are informed by and, and, and brought, um, and just more helpful because I have more realities in it, right? And so the hope for me being at the surface is, partly definitely due to privilege and partly due to having access to things and having been to a university like Stanford or having my parents have, you know, paid for me to do some of the college training things in high school so that you can be set up. Like there are points at which I was provided things, but in the last 10 years, I would say when I've been more um, responsible for the intake that I have, right. With, with my community, I think I've drawn, I've been drawn to folks who, um, who needed better answers than what places like Stanford were giving, right? Or, or what places right. like, um, you know, the government are tell you are true, right? So I was like, no, this, something's right. a lot is missing here, right? And so I think I've also just been drawn to the, the holiness of our community, right? So I say I'm holy and that's me reaffirming myself, but there, there's something so um, obviously a gift about how black trans folks walk in the world because you have blackness, you have queerness, you have transness, you have class, you have all these things you're holding and, 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 you know, experiencing or shaping to your, to your liking as much as possible. Right. And not letting what we've, what most of us have kind of let weigh us down, not letting that happen. Right. So I see, I see my community as, you know, what I was told was not holy, but actually is the ultimate embodiness of, of beauty and possibility and power, right? Yes, that's beautiful uh, and moving. I am hearing something I also want to check out because I'm, I'm kind of relating to it. Uh, you know, I hear that your parents worked hard. Um, I also hear church. And I similarly have parents that worked hard and uh, I grew up in a in an intentional church community, not kind of geographically bound, but kind of covenant bound, uh, Puerto Rican working class community in Western Massachusetts. Uh, it was Catholic, uh, but in the charismatic traditions, it's as Pentecostal as you can get yeah. while being Catholic. So it's okay. everything, right? Um, I bring it up because I'm just curious, do you... How much of of the privileges, if you will, that you've been able, were able to attain, right? Like getting into, a, into a, an Ivy League, having all these supports. Do you think that your parents being part of a church community was integral to that? Or was it kind of a sidebar mm -hmm. to that? That's a good question. I, it's funny because my church was actually so um, kind of trying to be such a... New Testament church that kind of really went by the Bible that when I got into multiple different schools, they wanted me to go to the school that had the best church, not the best school. <laughs> so I, that's an example of, I don't quite think that they were as instrumental to that. I think um, in as much as a, you know, a church becomes your community and what you know of as um, what feels welcoming or what it means to belong somewhere. I think I did learn that there because my parents were in this same church from before I was born, when my siblings were younger, who because they're about 10 years older than me. So they had kind of a whole parenting attempt before I came around, basically. 
and and yet we're still in this church. So there would be times where I would grow up and people would be like, are you your sister, right? Or are you related to these people, like without even knowing me? So I do think this idea of belonging and this idea of um, people knowing you and wanting to know who you are, wanting to know how your schoolwork is going, how your sports is going, like that felt um, like something I learned from there. But the rest, I wouldn't say as she was, was a reason um, for the achievement, except that having that root, having that sense of belonging means that you're not searching for it in other ways. Got you. Got you. Thank you for that. I, I and then just to dig a little more, one more step into this one, because I the, the 90 cards uh, moved me. And I, I, I think about this a lot. I think about what it's like to grow up in a church community. I experience the binds and limitations of that. I can point to specific problems in my psyche that I am conditioning that I've had to work on, right? And I'm working on because mm-hmm. of that. So, and I also know that there was something there that was that was unique and not available to everybody. And I also see it uh, even even in the right, right, the the right wing. Like there's something that they that they are giving yeah. their people, right? That I don't think we are yeah. giving ours. Uh, and, and so, do you think, for for example, in your organizing in your community right now? somebody gets hurt, is there a structure that gets them 90 cards? You know what I mean? Like, do we have that in place? Do you have that in place? Do you know of, of, of places where the equivalent of that is happening? Yeah, I I appreciate the naming of that because I do agree, right, that there is something simple about the ways that people just need to be taken care of. And I think I'm hopeful that we're actually returning or, or, or approaching a time when, you know, now that we have all the words for describing people's identities, that won't necessarily stop us from meeting folks' needs, right? Because I think right now, sometimes we're so worried about getting the word right that we forget about the more fundamental person underneath um, that ideally would be okay even if something's a little bit not quite right, you know, like that we're, we might mess up, but like the intention is there, right? And um, I think I think we could do a lot better job at that, you know, and I think social media has supported us um, or has been a version of now how we kind of care for each other, right? When someone's family or someone posts about someone passing away or there's ways that we, you know, show care, but the cards, I mean, I guess that's like an old school thing. Part of it, I was still in high, I was still in high school, which means my community was like only so big and I missed three months of school. So it was very noticeable. So I think over time, yeah, that, you know, there could be certain spaces that provide that, but I, I, I would say that that is an example of what I hope to create is that like, you know, when I, when I'm doing my work, I don't want the only time someone has heard from me to be when I need something from them. Right. And that's at at minimum while, you know, we're stretched thin fighting many battles at once. The least we can do is be with people period. Right. When we are with them, as opposed to need only or extract only, like there has to be a being with people that we don't forget, you know, that we don't organize ourselves or activist ourselves out of, just appreciating, right? That, you know, for instance, that billionaire just gave all that money to the, the class of the graduating class of Morehouse, where some activists are like, there shouldn't be billionaires. That's so whack. Da, da, da. And it's like, so many people are looking at that and just grateful, right? We don't sometimes experience that gratitude and just that sense of being with what is so without jumping to the next level or the next de- demand, right? And so I think there is a, a space for us to grow in that for sure. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. And that's resonating for me. And, and it, it brought up another thing that I know you and I have resonated uh, on in the past, because you know, I know you're also a facilitator. And 
I appreciated what you said about getting the language right, right? But you hope that it doesn't mean we forget like what's underneath that. And I'll share, and I, I bring it up almost in every one of these episodes because it, it is what I wrestle with uh, the most, I think, in the work that I'm doing. It's this attempt to solve the problem uh, by kind of predefining what relationship and language should look like, right? So if you are, uh, if you know, the Oppression Olympics, for example, or, you know, there's five people in the room. Okay, the person that talks first is the black trans person, right? And then the person that talks last is the white guy. And, and so it's like, we're really trying to get this right, but it's like, we get really rigid about it. Um, and it, it's such a, it's so hard because what I see evoke is actual fear, right? It, 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 it makes people so afraid of getting it wrong that there's no connection there. Uh, and speaking to somebody that's so clear that, hey, wait a minute, let's be real. Language matters. That pronoun is important to me. Of course, right? Mm-hmm. How do you work with that vibration, with that energy that seems to be like sweeping over our spaces? I, I'm looking for help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is a longer thing. We could have a whole phone call about all of these things, right? But um, I would say, you know, part of my work is to say when someone says what they need to just take that in pocket it and keep moving. Right. And to say, amazing. I'm going to incorporate that in how I move. Right. Cause I think sometimes what we are so used to doing, whether we're on the receiving end or the, the giving end of that demand is we're used to, we kind of, there's a power struggle, right. When someone says, this is what I need, we end up saying, no, 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 that can't be what you need. Right. And, and so then what we're, we don't get to the content because we're too, frustrated with each other, either not feeling like we know how to use something on maybe on the receiving end or somebody just being frustrated that yet, a, you know, yet another person is questioning what this person says that they need such that they can't also get to the content, right? Because what I have found is that many of us want to get to the content or hope to at some point, but we are so used to struggling on that first power, power level that we even forget our purpose in this space, right? Like we, we kind of succumb to shame or we succumb to there's a right way and a wrong way versus a a way just be, to be together, right? To say, if I mess up, taking that right. in, keeping it pushing, right? Just like when, you know, when a group goes off and you're facilitating, right? And a group is changing the subject, you're going to let them for a little bit. And then you're going to say, great, is this changing what we're here for? Or do we want to go back to what we said we wanted to do while we were here, right? There's going to be a reckoning of, we mess up, but how, let's not power struggle over it. Let's just take it in and move forward and like be accountable as quickly as possible, not in a dismissive way, but in a, wow, I own that. That's great. Thank right. you for that. Like a welcoming in kind of way of like, wow, this is going to welcome us into doing this work even better versus it being a power struggle. Right. I like it. I appreciate that. Now that's something, that's something that it just feels like so much of the energy can dissipate in that direction. And But I appreciate the, this idea that, that there's a power struggle at the surface, right? That doesn't let us get into it. But the, yeah, the, I, you told me what you need. Let me hear it. Let me welcome it. Let me integrate it. Let me keep moving. I um, I think there's something for me there to, mm-hmm. to keep playing with. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm going to say one more thing, though, that a lot of, like I said, there can be a projection and a frustration 
of somebody who's not expecting to be heard, right? And even they get caught up in that power struggle because they're so used to not being understood and heard. Right. So that's why it's even more important that the, pe- the person on the receiving end or the group or the people on the receiving end take it and run with it and say, wow, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here with you. And they can be like, you are, <laughs> right? right. They're, they're saying, wow, you believe me. And so then even for us, those of us who are not used to being you know, taken seriously, there is work that we need to do too, to say, what am I here to do? How can I make it so that someone's words or someone's phrasing doesn't negate what I am here to do. Like, you know what I mean, right? Sometimes we spend so much time waiting for the approval of someone else or, and sometimes to be honest, right, to be clear, there are ways where we do need that approval of state, putting our correct pronoun, putting our correct gender, all that is important. When we go to the healthcare spaces that we go to or workplace, wanting people to address you a certain way, that's different, right? But I mean, in spaces where we're with people, it's good for everyone to do that work of saying, wow, let me make sure that I'm here to do what I, I came to do, right? And then I can follow through with that as opposed to expecting or kind of projecting trauma of expecting to be misunderstood. Right, right. It's almost, yeah. No, we, I, I, I get it. I get it. We are, because we do it, every oppressed group has its version of it, right? I, I mean, I see it in, I don't want to call them out, but like mm-hmm. there's like people in my own family, right? That we're hanging out and I'm like, wait a minute, man. Like, I don't, I'm not sure that that was, uh, what the person intended like, you know what i mean like uh they didn't cut you in line because you're puerto rican mm-hmm. uh I'm, that's not what happened but, you know it often it often does um uh, which i know by the way mm-hmm. i'm curious about that for a second here uh i know that that's something we share i think one of your parents is boricua can mm-hmm. you tell me a little bit about about that part of your experience yeah it's tricky because you know my grandfather who is Boruka, like he passed before I was born. So I didn't get the direct, direct culture conditioning and love in that first, um, you know, just arrived here sort of way. But, and then, you know, it was in that space of, of generational um, experience where folks were being, you know, assimilation was the goal, right. Versus standing out and everything. But what I've, you know, been told about our connection is that, so first of all, my middle name is Yoselin, like Jose, but yeah. with a Lin on the end. Yeah. So I'm named after him. So I feel more connected, whereas my siblings are named after just my parents uh-huh. and I'm named after a grandparent. Um, and so Yoselin, like, is Jose, me, just kind of, again, channeling some of that gender that I didn't get assigned, but that I feel like it's part of me um, in terms of being named after a grandfather, I suppose, a grandmother. And then, um, yeah, I mean, I just know that he had multiple businesses. He worked really, really hard. He basically died working um, and, you know, uh, really established. He was a black Puerto Rican man, right? You know, like in Berkeley and passed through Colorado where he met my, my grandmother. So it's, it's kind of a, a storied experience uh, to hear about it. And my family is not the most emotional uh, or like, you know, nostalgic <laughs> type of group. But um, from what I've heard, you know, we have a similar skin tone. Like we've just, there's similarities that, um, you know, in terms of him working hard, he had a degree from I think university um, in San Juan. So like he was working, you know, he was, he was achieving and I'm not the first generation to graduate, right? There's, there's a history of of success or excellence at that level or access even just to those levels. So I I also know he had a whole family in Puerto Rico so that, you know, there's many layers, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so unfortunately I didn't get to like connect with him as much, but it's always been, again, similarly to, like I said earlier, just always been an uncovering for me about what is, you know, when I speak Spanish, I feel I'm not going to speak it right now. But like when I speak Spanish, you know, I feel really, um, I feel like it, it fits on my tongue, even yeah. though it's colonized and it's got, a, you know, an intense history. It feels better than English, right? So the time that I spent studying it in high school and college, 
felt really important and felt like I got to tap into parts of myself that I wouldn't have gotten to. And because I speak so fast normally, everybody always thought my Spanish was really good. <laughs> <laughs> that is great. That's so great. I just you know, leaned into that and it's been a part of my identity that I always seek more information about, but wish I had more constantly. That's, thank you. Thank you for that. There's a, so a, a thought I've been playing with that I'll share because I, I just know, uh, I just know, I know you'll be intrigued by it. And maybe you've heard it before, but I forget who the author is, but he conceptualized the Caribbean as more than the basin, right? As this like cultural space that extends from Salvador in Bahia, right? To New Orleans, right? And so they're, they're yeah. much bigger, right? And it's like the heart of Africa outside of Africa. Uh, and it's amazing how you get these tiny little islands, like mm-hmm. whether it be Jamaica, Cuba, Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, like Trinidad, like with these massive mm-hmm. cultural footprints, right? Yeah. Given our scale, the kind of cultural contribution, right? And mm-hmm. over and over again, right? Because we move from like mambo to salsa yeah. to reggaeton now, right? Like it, it, it's just a so. I, I, that's one of the things I love about you being a musician, right? I I don't know how how that is connected to the Caribbean, right? But it's somewhere in, in that DNA that that mm-hmm. that need to meet to meet the world with song. I think it's quite powerful. Yeah. It's so yeah, and I think it, it's such an entryway to the honest truth about the sla- the transatlantic slave trade, right? And about the resilience that we embody, given that the Caribbean also had the most horrific practices, right? Around enslavement and around violence. Like uh it's it, you know, I think there's a there's a something that correlates there, right? That like the joy and similar to black Americans in the United States, right? The joy, the resilience that we've embodied that um, folks see in us that we literally made out of thin air is similar, right? To the, the joy and the resilience and the power and the, the cultural kind of cohesion that is consistent within the Caribbean. Yeah, yeah, no, I, that, and that's again, something I offer, I actually project that onto you a lot that, that I, I talked about it earlier. There's a capacity to hold this real, this very real pain. And then like, even now I look at you and, and you got this smile on. And I just, I just think that's what, like, we, that's it. We need to feel, in fact, it was, um, I just heard a, a podcast, uh, the Healing Justice podcast. And it had uh, Adrian mm-hmm. Mary Brown and Amita, I'm forgetting mm-hmm. Amita's last name right now. Mm-hmm. Yes. Talking mm-hmm. about pleasure activism and something Amita said that was so powerful, right? It was like, you know, being able to tap our pleasure really is not just about like getting like the dopamine hits, right? It's it's about growing our container so that we can feel more, right? Like we can feel more, yeah. which includes feeling more of the pain that we don't yeah. want to look at. And, and it's a very interesting mm-hmm. and I think profound, it has profound implications. It has profound implications. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so grateful for the work that Adrian and, and others are doing um, in that in that space. Adrian is a loving, loving, amazing friend, and uh, you know I had the honor of her including some of my comments in in our her first book um, on emergent strategy. And I think you know I'm not alone in feeling resonance with the works that she's putting out. Right, with even looking back at Audre Lorde that uses the erotic right as a foundational text for pleasure activism. I know what I remember when I first read that I, I was in college and I actually I feel bad, but I took the copy in the LGBT center because I was like, no, I need this in my life. I'm so sorry. I, someone was able to find it or they replaced it I'm <laughs> for that. But, um, but I remember like 
feeling so latched on to Audre Lorde's words and feeling like I couldn't find it anywhere else that I just was going to hold on to this book for a little longer. And then whoops, I graduated, but you know, I needed it <laughs> in my life. And, and, you know, to have access to someone who made it so clear and so plain that like everything we feel is for a reason, right? It's not to, it's not to run away from, it's not to, you know, I was taught that God was more important than anything I felt, right? So to find a black lesbian, no less a black woman, black woman, right? Naming that, nope, everything you feel that you taught yourself to try not to pay attention to or to, to tell yourself was a sin or whatever it is that I had to kind of wrap my mind around what, what church was telling me, for her to say, no, it, it all matters. And like every feeling you have is beautiful. It might not be comfortable, but you, you should learn to pay attention to them because that is who you are in this world. That is all you have access to, control over. And like, that's how you're gonna define who you're gonna become is to pay attention to what has made you feel good and what has given you the capacity to feel like you could be more and more of yourself than you ever thought and what makes you feel small. Right, and what makes you feel like, nope, don't want to feel that no more, right? And, car and carving out your life such that you not only are the one who gets to decide that, but then you are responsible for moving through both the highs, the lows, the valleys, the peaks of your feelings and honoring every single nook and cranny of them. That's, that's, that's powerful and, and so important right now. And it, it, is, it, leads me an, an, it leads me to another question, which is so important. <laughs> to lift uh, safety, to focus on consent, to become aware of the damage that men have done and do and continue to perpetrate. And in that urge for safety, in that commitment to safety, the, the other side of it can often feel like uh, like our space is almost becoming more puritanical, right? Like it, it, there seems to be like a confusion sometimes between safety, consent, and the dance of sensuality and desire. And I I know firsthand that that is a, a line to be to be very careful with. And certainly as a facilitator, the the, the clarity of strong boundaries. Uh, with all of these things, uh, lessons, lesson learned, mm -hmm. lessons learned, uh, sometimes the hard way in this work. Uh, but you speak of desire. You speak of pleasure. You've uplifted Adrian's work. What more could you tell us about the the role of of that in our becoming human mm -hmm. together? Yeah, I mean, just what comes to mind as you're speaking now in terms of, you know, the struggles that men are being called to face or being called out um, in, in the ways that men kind of perpetuate harm. What is, what is, what feels connected to me is this idea that um, as far as I've seen, I, I can't say because I wasn't socialized as a man. I feel like I in some ways was, but I don't quite have the language to describe that yet. But so in the ways that I've seen how manhood is policed, it's a space where you don't get to have access to all of your feelings. like that's kind of almost like the, the definition of, of expected in some ways, right? Historically, things are breaking out of that now. But I do think in some of the communities that we come from or in places where people traffic and just what is regular, not all the, the words and the big words and the, you know, the concepts, just what is regular, what is so, right? Is that you are not supposed to cry. You're not supposed to you know, express yourself around um, joy or curiosity and like, you know, you're not really supposed to, or you don't give, you're not given the full range of expression there or even curiosity about expression, right? 
So I don't see, I, I think it's really interesting that, you know, on the one hand, um, responses to the consent and the Me Too work is sit down workshops, right? Is conversations and really struggling deeply through words. But I, I see a correlation between how many, uh, and follow me here, but how many Instagram comedians there are that are assigned male at birth and yet embodying or making their entire comedic routine about womanhood, mm-hmm. right? Like I actually, and some of it is making fun of, but some of them are actually genuinely funny without making fun of women. It's just, we are taking on this quote unquote idea of a character of what I think a woman is or what my mama was, right? right. And being these jokesters. And I almost feel like that is like a place where men, because you're not, ex- you can't do that without putting a wig on. I actually feel like this is a way that people are trying to come to terms with what they are expected to do and what they actually want to do, right? Which is, I want to be goofy. I want to be silly. I want to act like what people would say women act like. And I might be really good at it, right? And so what does that even say? Like, if we're thinking about pleasure activism, we think about so many Instagram comedians are really feminine or, or projecting femininity and projecting womanhood. Like, that to me feels connected. And I think I want that to be okay, mm-hmm. right? A friend of mine, Erin Lang, um, recently really wrote a status and it turned into kind of an article where she was like, you know, it was kind of around the Snapchat filters and how people were trying them on and saying, oh, which one do I look like? Do I look more like this man one or the woman one? And it's frustrating because, you know, we wish that people had that much curiosity about folks who are actually living the experience of gender nonconformity or actually living, you know, trans experiences. But on the one hand, while frustrating as it may be, this playfulness or this curiosity is actually part of the world we want. We just have to learn how to be in conversation and community about it, as opposed to harmful, you know, projections that we put on top of it when, when you know, people are that in the real world versus just a Snapchat filter or an Instagram um, video. Like, I think by giving people the tools to do this in a, in, a, in a way that is still in proximity to trans and queer folks, it does give them a little bit more room to try it out for themselves in ways that almost take the energy off of trans folks, because a lot of times what Erin basically wrote in her article is that cis folks are cowards when it comes to gender because they've been told there's only one way and they essentially try to fill their life with conforming because that feels safer and yeah. maybe like society will you know be okay with them more and they're not so much thinking about am I okay with myself and so they're you know giving up points of potential joy to conform to something right so this gives people room to be curious and we want them to do it both in you know ways where they can do it for themselves, but also then honor other other folks' curiosity and other folks' truth. Right. But yeah, it's all connected. Jim Marie, there is um, there is uh, something beautiful about uh, you have this powerful intellect, right? But there's a generosity of spirit, right? That you that you bring to the conversation. Trying. Uh, that is so desperately needed, and I, I, I feel it. I, I feel it somatically. Do you know what I mean? Like, I literally feel uh, as we talk, you know, a ball of energy between us, and I feel like my heart softens and opens, and I, and I, and it makes me more capable of learning. And I just really want to honor that and lift that. Uh, that that last there's complexity to what you just laid out, right? And uh, and there's a deep generosity of spirit to it. I wanted to acknowledge it. Yeah, I mean, and it's just something that it's hard, right? Because there's this combination of people aren't taught to explore themselves and to own up to just what feels good and just be honest about that. Like we're not taught that that's okay, right? And which is what I love about Adrian's work, right? Pleasure activism and emergent strategy is we we have to go towards what works and not keep fighting ourselves, right? That's one thing. But 
<clears throat> there's this dual frustrating kind of issue where it's like there are consequences then for in this world right now there are consequences for for owning up to what you like right you are fired you're kicked out of your family's house you're denied love you know because the, the, the struggle is that a lot of trans women even as we are coming up with more language and ways to keep folks safe it, it's not correlating to people finding partners and love and being dated right and 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 getting orgasms as many orgasms as they want like that's not we're not at that point yet we're still in this like theoretical place where everybody is saying trans women shouldn't be being killed but yet there's not as much there's not as many trans folks in your spaces right you're not actually welcoming people in or even seeking them out and of course there's cultural spaces kind of there's cultural distance right because of that marginalization that trans folks have experienced um but again it's it's frustrating when you have a group that's being so honest about who they are being squashed and marginalized by people who are cowards right in some of these other regards and so that's what i fight for is i i know that black trans folks being as brilliant and and big as we are is is the honesty that we need in the world so every space that i try to cultivate is to bring more of that together or to help us learn from each other because we are even though we're being honest we're being we're taught that something is making someone else uncomfortable but it's like but you literally the whole point is that we all need to be moving towards honesty so you know, I, I don't uh, I don't really agree with the shutting down or the quieting of black trans folks. If anything, I need, I need us to be the loudest group out there, not because of oppression Olympics, but because I think we have so much to teach people and not in like an emotional labor kind of way. Right. But just in like an offering, like just by being in space, you all will change because we are we've already done that work. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And it's certainly it's certainly been my experience. Um, I appreciate it. I'm learning from my friends. I just try to pass it along. Beautiful. I'm aware of our time. I wanted, there's a couple of things I want to make sure we check in on before uh, we wrap, which is, I want to hear what about this bike ride that you're doing? What is, what are you up to? Yes. I'm so excited about it. Um, I, a few years ago, went on a similar bike ride um, with a group of folks. It was um, with a group called Black Freedom Outfitters. And they basically just take, you know, black folks out into nature. Right. And, and I felt like, so that, that trip was, closer to 300 miles um, on, on bikes over the course of six or seven days, which is not a lot of, you know, days and for a lot of miles. Um, but I just felt like I had, you know, unlocked something in my body that I hadn't, you know, when you achieve something like that and, and do it with a group of people, you're physically changed, you're spiritually changed, right? And what I had done in that trip was raise money for a trans woman because I felt like the miles alone were hard, but that was even part of my kind of politicization was to say, this is a group that I think we should pay more attention to and figure out how to talk about and how to be in community with. Um, and so did that bike tour and raised some of that money. But now, I, you know, I've, in this moment of despair, frustration, overwhelm at 2020 prospects and just the way the government works, I felt like we needed a, a space of hope. And I felt like we needed a, a space to be, you know, focused on embodied joy and resilience and challenging ourselves in community because we spend so much time, again, being frustrated, right? And being uh, rightfully so, things aren't, aren't great sometimes, right? But um, there are just so many reasons to despair that I just was like, I need one less reason <laughs> to be frustrated, you know? And I, I wanna go towards something that is gonna be hard, is gonna push me, is gonna take discipline from me, is gonna take belief and faith um, that I can raise thousands of dollars, you know, a good 20, 30 um, to make this happen. But I know that we are worth it. And so it's a, it's a faith practice for me to put this bike right on. Um, and it is an experience. It's more than a tour, right? A tour is from point A to point B. But this experience um, is going to have somatic practice. It's going to have trainings, workshops leading up. 
things that could cost thousands of dollars. And hopefully we can pay folks to support and facilitate. But I do hope that many people will be willing to, to you know, offer their time, um, volunteer their time for a community that is going to be scrambling to raise money just to go on the tour, right? Let alone um, have money to pay for thousands of dollars of facilitation. But I know that we're worth that learning. So I'm really excited to bring this together and, and to remind us that we're worth this joy of, you know, this birthright, um, this joy of this joy as birthright, right? Like that, that is, we deserve that. It sounds, it sounds phenomenal. It sounds spectacular. And uh, definitely think of me if there's any way I can be of support. Uh, you know, summer's out. And just now I, uh, I bike. I am I actually, I've entered, I've been, uh, I'm in recovery. So I go to my 12 step programs yeah. and I bike, I bike there and I bike back. And just that on a daily basis fills me with life. I, it, it, there's something to being in this God-given bodies yeah. uh, and alert and awake to them. Mm-hmm. It's irreplaceable. It's like pleasure activism on another scale, right? It's just like, what does it mean to remember to, to be loved on as you are honored in your body as opposed to in spite of your body, right? Right. I just, I just want to pull it off. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, it, it's it's a it's a battle because it's we're in an imagination battle, right? As Adrian says. Yeah. So I, I'm gonna have to battle this imagination struggle that many of us, you know, it's frustrating and hard and and really sad that we're launching this. This was a planned day. We said, you know, I was like, we're gonna do the podcast, and you know, let's push ourselves to get this ready. Um, but on this day of May 20th, when we are recording this, we are we are all kind of waking up to some of these um, this awareness that three black trans women were killed in the last two days. Oh, I'm sorry. Right? Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's so much, it happens so much, it's hard to keep up sometimes, but um, that was really hard, right? It was like, I wanted to bring this offering, and yet in our social media feeds, the people that I wanted to be talking about it and who I hoped would receive the offering are in mourning, right? And I am too, but I, I was holding them, and I was prepared to say, you know, um, in the time coming forward, there's going to be, you know, people are going to be passing, but this is our this is our right, that we get to push forward something and remind ourselves that we can do things beyond like raise money for the healthcare that we are owed, but have, are not receiving. Right. So it's, it's, it's been a struggle and I know it will be a struggle because a lot of times people are limited to what is going wrong in their, in their thinking, right. They're not able to think about the positive or the potential or the possibility. So I really see this, this September trip um, as an intervention into what we are used to and also as a possibility model. That's not a person. That's just an experience. That's super exciting. And, and, and it- if there's anything we can do with this podcast about its release and anything, any way it can be helpful, I would love that. The the last one, I have one question and then my the two questions I always ask before the podcast is over. Anything you can tell me about your music? Are you producing something? Where can yeah. people find your music? Uh, yeah, I um I have I put a song out last year in a video, just learning. Really, you know, music is all about learning, and producing your own music is all about learning your own limits. Um, but this year, I do have to put out a couple singles, and I and I would love to, um, you know, insert some here. But um, yeah, so two songs. Um, one that I really want to put a couple of my little nibblings and family members on. Um, that song is called "We'd Be Free." It does have a little bit of a um, six-eight Caribbean kind of feel to it, so I'm excited about that one. And then um, another song called "Welcome," which uh, I wrote right after Trump was elected, and um, you know, is is really about remembering that this struggle precedes him and will go beyond him and that we have to show up, you know, even if it means being impolite, even if it means staying up all night, right? Like we have this work and it is, it is ours to do and we can't kind of keep passing the baton, but we have to remember that, um, you know, people need to be welcomed into the fight, not shamed and made sad. 
Mm. You feel the freedom? You feel the freedom? Freedom within your reach? Uh. I know, I know we'll be free one day. I will certainly put links in the show notes. And uh, But is there a site you want to tell? Any kind of website you want to let that people know about? Yeah, well, I have a band camp. So my name there is J-A-Y dash capital M-A-R-I-E is holy. J-Marie is holy. Um, dot bandcamp.com. Or I'm on Spotify and iTunes. There's just the one single there right now, but there will be more soon. Um, and, you know, excited to right now in my life, I'm really focusing on just bringing people together. So the bike experience is a, is a practicing of that. But we'll be fundraising. We're asking people to throw events to bring people together in the name of Black Trans Freedom. So if somebody wants me to come perform somewhere, you know, I will, I will probably say no less, you know, probably say yes. Um, and I'm, I'm always willing to, to do this work in service of bringing us together and to remind us of our, our birthright of, you know, worthiness and possibility and joy. Thank you for that. Thank you for your art. I think art is everything. I think music is everything. Uh, and I know you. Do you still have your Patreon site? Is that still a place where people can engage with your kind of brilliance, your intellect, support support your thinking? Yeah, it's getting settled here in St. Louis has taken a lot more brain space than I thought it would. It's still live my Patreon, but it's actually going to shift towards supporting the bike experience. So if people are able to support the experience and want to donate at my Patreon monthly, it's going to go towards this now as opposed to my own, you know, business or whatever. This is really the only project that I'm doing under the Music Freedom Dreams moniker for this year. Um, the music will come out, but probably later because the tour is just going to take so much time to keep people safe, right? To bring 10 to 20 tr trans folks into a space means you have to be really mindful of where you're going to be. You can't just, you know, stick them in a place. So really, really spending a lot of time preparing folks and building um, prep, like prep on the ground so that people can be received into a safe community area, all that. Brilliant. I'll be sure to leave. We'll be sure to leave that up as well. Now, at the end of this podcast, I, I, I asked a couple of questions uh, to all of my guests and uh you know the first one you the first one you touched on already uh it was part of the conversation but let me ask to see if there's anything else you would add in these times you know when kind of the violence right and 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 hurt and harm that men cause has become and people have always known, but like, it's just got to out. It's glaring. We can't hide from it, right? It's a moment of reckoning. Uh, 
and I, I engage this work as uh, myself, as I always call it my work of atonement, right? My work of, of, of make atoning for, for all the ways in, a, in which I have been part of this patriarchal ugliness. Um, mm-hmm. So the question I ask for people like you is, what should men do? What, what do we need to know? What do we need to do in order to meet this moment? Mm. Yeah, I think the main thing I would say is just get into proximity, right? Like the more that you are deeply in proximity to women and gender nonconforming folks who ex- just experience the world and see the world differently than you do, the more you will not be able to keep out the the realizations and the and the the desire to like move differently, right? And knowing, of course, there are spaces that you're not welcome into because there are times people need to have, you know, space from that and and uh, and just be safe from that. But I think being welcomed into or doing things for women who you're not attracted to, right, is is part of just the process of, you can't really fix things if you're not in a relationship to people, an authentic relationship, right? Because then the, the, the solution will only be as real as the relationship is in the first place, right? So I think getting into, into proximity, getting into conversation, um, and, and more so listening, talking way less, <laughs> but really listening and, and just sitting with the realities, the truths, practicing believing, right? Like I know one thing that I think is part of me that's like socialized male is that I don't, it's hard for me to listen. And so I'm really leaning into listening to more podcasts and not scrolling while I do it, but really listening, right? That's the thing that I just need more practice at. And I think if more men or masculine folks or people who are socialized as non-women could have access to parts of themselves that are more about listening than about being right or about talking, then I think we'd get so much further. Mm, that's, that's, that's gold. Thank you. And I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to keep this phrase practicing believing as, as, as a real gem. Thank you. The next one is is short and it, it, it's a little bit it's a, it's a light touch facilitation, so it requires some consent. You can say no, but the invitation is to actually visualize yourself uh, ten years from now, right? Just everything you're working on, everything you're in yourself, in your body, in your soul, in your spirit, in your work, and assuming that you're successful, that even half of it, sixty, seventy percent, actually becomes true, right? Like this process of becoming that you're in. If you can get yourself there, and I don't need you to tell me where there is actually, but what the invitation is from there, if you could then time travel back to now, what advice would you give yourself? That's a great question. And my advice to myself from the future to right now would be to just pay attention to that nugget of, pull what is being pulled out of me um, and and not let social media get in the way of the my own thoughts generating my own thoughts and and worrying about what other people think right like just I would just tell myself uh, to buckle down and believe in my community that we are enough and that we deserve family connection healing joy and anytime that I am in pursuit of that I am on my personal track of purpose and that I should keep doing that Ache. That's it. Demary, you are indeed holy. I feel blessed by you today. I feel like I've learned. I feel your beauty and energy. Thank you for your generosity. Um, I'm, I'm deeply moved. I can't wait to get this out to our listeners. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited. I'm grateful. And I can't wait to have folks inquire about the bike experience and inquire about all the work that Black trans folks around the country are doing um, as a result of the fact that we just get to be together and that we got to listen to each other and talk today. So thank you so much for having me. 
Ache. Welcome to not knowing. Welcome to a shared fear. Welcome to the end times. We've been here for years and years. Welcome. Welcome, I said, welcome. We got to be ready to fight till the birth of the world we want. To be ready to fight till the death for the world we need, for the world we need, yeah. We got to be ready, got to be, we got to be ready, got to be, we got to be ready. This I know for sure.